All right, I want to invite you to James chapter 5 as we continue our journey in an effort to, in the near term, finish this little book with so much impact. James is um, the how-to book, how to validate, verify your faith, how to express your faith, how to live it in a way that has influence and impact. The theme I want to start with about the little book of James, these five chapters, part of the reason it was written, I believe, is because God's people were distributed diaspora-like seed. Persecution had driven them all over the empire, and one of the benefits of the dispersion is the potential for the gospel. That as Christianity is moving out into the Roman Empire through its missionary agents, converted Christians, converted Jews primarily, but certainly even Gentiles, there was the opportunity for the good news of Jesus Christ to be preached, and I think, as importantly, validated. Because the message we profess, the one we're going to sing about, the one we just sang about, the ones The message we're going to celebrate this holiday season can often be undermined by the incompatibility of the way we live the truths we profess. So we say that Jesus Christ is not just a rescuer and a deliverer from my sin, he's a life changer. And because of his presence in my life, because of his work in my life, my life looks different. And James would say, if it doesn't look different, Jesus hasn't impacted your life. It's information you know, but it's not a reality you enjoy. And therefore, when you profess it, Christianity, you declare Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, born of a virgin, human, divine, Savior of the world, You've received him as your Savior and Lord, and when that life, your life, my life, does not really reflect that reality, it undermines it. The power of the gospel is a truth you proclaim and the life that you live. Can you say amen to that? It's true. And that's not meant as hardball at the beginning of your morning. It's meant as a calibrating reminder because that's what James is doing. He's calling them brothers. They're believers, unless they're not. And these are the validating evidences of true belief. And in chapter 5, as we come to the end, I, I think that maybe as much as any section we've examined together, this one is, my new word, uber-relevant. It's super important. And we just got done talking about materialism, five, chapter 5, 1 through 6, talking about the misery to come for the materialist. James saying real Christians are not dishonest or ruthless in the pursuit of things. They've not made money and stuff their God. Real Christians don't have a false God of things. They have things in their life. But that's not their chief pursuit and priority. They don't hoard their stuff. Real Christianity doesn't see how much it can accumulate. It sees it not as a treasure, but as a trust, a stewardship. Possessions are meant to be invested. So the way we ended last time, real Christians don't have a false god of things. They don't hoard their stuff. They generously use it. And they honestly steward it. Because genuine faith is proven by how we invest and steward our resources. Money really does talk. And how we live is often louder than our words. Your stuff is a stewardship. I uh, read this this week. Alexander the Great, when he was on his deathbed, and we're told this by historians, he commanded that he would be carried forth to the grave with his hands 
open and unwrapped. In other words, the whole body wasn't wrapped, the hands were out. As was usual, they would wrap the entire body, but in this case he requested and really commanded that they would not, so that the hands would be exposed and they would seem to be, be seen to be empty. There was nothing in them. He was born to one empire and the conqueror of another, the possessor while he lived of two worlds, of the east and of the west, and of the treasures of both. Yet now when he was dead, he could retain not even a small portion of that treasure. You come into the world with nothing, you leave with nothing. The next world is defined by how you invest what you're entrusted. That in message of stewardship in an often materialistic culture like ours is so critical because it's central to Christianity, foundational. And then James has also said by these dire and dark warnings about materialism and stuff, don't get it the wrong way. Don't be dishonest or ruthless in the pursuit of things because if money is your God, you're willing to do whatever it takes really without boundaries, which is where he just ended in verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You've lived a life of pleasure, unbounded, unrestricted pleasure. You've used your assets for your gratification. And you've secured those assets often at the expense of others. You've abused them, and in some cases, you've killed them in order to satisfy your appetites. That's the context for the section we're about to read. Verse 7, therefore, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and He's merciful. But above all, verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Contextually, the materialist, the wealthy, the hoarder, those who didn't use their stuff, or those who had an abundance and misused their stuff, or acquired it in ways that were inappropriate, the materialist, the warnings to them, miseries to come, I believe the transition in verse 7, therefore, is a transition to those who have been abused. If you are the persons who are in the lesser, weaker position, if you've been taken advantage of, if you've been injured, he has been a warning and rebuking the materialistic, verses 1 through 6. He's pointed out their habit of mistreating and harming others in order to get what they want, and now... He shifts gears. In verse 7, his focus is not on the one who injures, but the one injured. He is essentially saying, having said what I've said to the rich, I want to talk to you who have been abused and unjustly treated by the rich. What do you do when you've been done wrong? What does a real Christian do when someone with power and resource takes advantage of them? injures and harms them, denies them their rightful wages, doesn't treat them fairly. What do they do when we are hurt and taken advantage of by others? When we're unjustly treated, we have natural spring-loaded default positions. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You're unfair with me, I'll address you in a similar way. 
way. When we're hurt, taken advantage of, or used by others, our nature tells us to do unto others as they have done unto us. Or worse. James wants to introduce us, I believe here, to God's approach. In other words, how to do right when you've done wrong, when you've been done wrong. One of the most impactful engines, catalyst to provoke interest is unnatural response to injury. What you do when you've done, been done wrong. So I've entitled this, Done Wrong, Do Right. A Christian call for doing right when you've been done wrong. Real Christians, and I'm going to give you the kind of the big bottom line, and then we'll work our way through this text. Real Christianity does not abuse when abused, but honors God by being like the Son of God patiently waiting for justice coming from God. Genuine faith is proven by patience in the face of abuse and injury. Real Christianity is doing right when you've been done wrong. That's the heart of this section. And I do believe that it can apply to any category where the greater is injuring the lesser the more powerful, the more resourced, when they take advantage of you, when they harm and injure you, real harm, real injury, this is what godly people do, good people do when they've been done wrong. Financially, of course, that's what the context specifically is about, but generally as well. All right, four biblical requirements for handling abuse. Two positive things, you need to do this. And that's James' style. Things you need to do and things absolutely you should not do. Two things to do, two things not to do when you've been done wrong. Number one, do right when you've been done wrong by being patient. Do you see it? Verse 7, hard to miss. Therefore, be patient. Do you see it at the beginning of verse 8? You too be patient. Be patient. It's an aorist verb. It's active. It's urgent. It's do it now. It's strong. Hey, I know you're being mistreated. I know you're being abused. I know you're being injured. I want you to be a Christian by manifesting a patience in the face of difficulty. Urgently and resolutely exercise restraint. Resist the reaction to retaliate or respond in kind. Patience, macrothemeo. The whole idea of this word has to do with putting up with, long-fused. Word meaning is delay. The attitude of self-restraint that does not try to get even for the wrong done. Long-suffering patience. Listen to this. This word is used towards people. It's not patience with stuff. It's patience with people. Not circumstances and not things. Chrysostom, the early church father, said it is the word which is used of the man who has wronged and has it in his power to attempt to retaliate or avenge himself, but chooses not to do it. Macrothemeo, long-suffering, putting up with. It was unique to Christianity. Listen to this historically. The Greeks never considered patience a virtue. It was never considered to be something that you would seek to be. It was a sign of weakness in that culture. Aristotle defined the great Greek virtue as the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury. The readiness to strike back at any hurt. That was the virtue. This is the antithesis. I can. I want to. I won't. 
patience. Deal with a person in a way that is not an expression of machismo or strength. Listen, it's hard in a culture like ours that is laden with disrespect, both verbal injury and practical injuries. You can get injured, and I don't mean somebody running into you on the freeway home today, because everybody and their brother is leaving this area to go north on the five. And it's every man for himself. Are you with me? Do you ever drive on these freeways? Yeah, I've got a wife and a son, and Harry and son, we, uh, we like driving. But everybody at my house is complaining that even in beautiful little Santa Clarita, people are in a significant aggressive race from one light to the next light. And there's something being lost in our culture. And when people behave in a way that disrespects and disregards, like you have no right to that space. I don't care if you're there. I'm going to take that slot. I don't care if your blinker's on, I'm going to deny you access. Is it hard for anybody but me? That's hard for me. I'm a Christian. I'm an elder in this church. And I see that happen, and I do not like it. I have been guilty of pulling up alongside of somebody. And then on the Christian side of me, elevates itself, but I'm telling you, it's hard. This is what James is saying. Resist the reaction to retaliate or respond in kind. Listen to me. This is weight. This is weight. Don't do it. Exercise patience. This is a direct, double-timed call to be patient. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You don't walk with God, you have no chance for this. The first requirement in the face of hurtful and dishonorable mistreatment is the exercising of patience. How? Look at what it says in verse 7. Just like the farmer. You're patient just like the farmer waits for the precious produce. Uh, Just a word about precious. Why is it precious to him? Because his life depends on it. If the crop doesn't come in, he doesn't eat. If the crop doesn't come in, he doesn't enjoy his home or his farm. He's vulnerable. This is an agricultural reality. Clement said James was a farmer. So maybe before the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, before they... Or maybe as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. How would he receive his income? Clement, early church father, says he was a farmer. And maybe it's that reality, that real understanding that said, you know what? Just like the farmer waits for what is precious, what really is valuable and life-impacting to him, Being patient about it. Do you see it? The third time that word is used in these first two verses. Being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now listen, it would rain in the fall when the the seed was planted. That was the hope. That was the normal cycle. So the rain would come. The seed would be watered. But no harvest would come unless there was a spring rain, April and May. And it was the, really the combination of early and late rain that produced the harvest. So you have these months in between, the hopeful planting and the joyful harvesting. The crop is precious. This matters to him. But even though it matters to him a lot, he has to wait between the fall and the spring. And he knows he has to wait. And just like he knows he has to wait, God's people need to know, by conviction, they have to wait. Until what? The coming of the Lord. Do you see that emphasis there? 
Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Do you feel the force of it? The judge is coming. The reconciler who will resolve the injustice is coming. You can count on it. Just like the farmer needs to wait for the rain that produces the harvest, you as a Christian need to wait until God, the giver of justice, not the giver of crops, but the giver of justice in this context, until he arrives to reconcile the wrong. Just like the farmer patiently waits on God for the installments of rain that will produce a needed harvest, so the Christian can and must wait for God to faithfully and ultimately bring the desired harvest of justice. Dealing with the wrongs, the injustice, the abuse, God, the one who makes things right, making it right. Just like the farmer, you too Be patient, even if a lot depends on it. His life depended on it. His livelihood depended upon it. It was a big deal. Listen, this is a tough one. In a world like ours that is a microwave culture, right? Air fryer. I want it fast. I want it now. It's hard to wait. Christians need to learn to exercise restraint because there is a king who is coming whose justice is perfect and it's not now, but it's sure. Learn to pause. There's a practical application. You've been hurt. Pause. Don't react in the way that is most natural Give God a chance to act. He's near. One of the beauties of verse 9, he's standing right at the door. Do you see that? The whole idea there of, and and, and verse uh, 8, for the coming of the Lord is near. The tense of that verb is it's close and it's coming. So there's justice even on the way. It's, It's close. Give God a chance to do what God does. Be patient. Do right when you've been done wrong by exercising restraint. Verse 8, second positive. Strengthen your heart. See verse 7, or verse 8 rather? You too be patient. Here's the next big installment by way of prescriptive requirement. Being done wrong, strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your heart so you can do what you're being asked to do. Be encouraged. Stand firm by getting and giving encouragement. I'm going to argue that your hearts, it's not just you as in a plural group receiving the call to be strengthened, but you as a member of the group receiving strength as well as giving strength, lending it. You too be patient, strengthen your heart, strengthen yours with the encouragements that are housed here, and encourage others. Strengthen your hearts. The word has to do with root your heart. Strengthen your heart by some encouragements, motivations. I love this section because there is an effort by James to say not only be patient, but strengthen your hearts with some perspectives that are essential for being patient. Why should a Christian be patient? Why should a Christian exercise self-restraint? Number one, because of the future and sure outcome promised here. The king and the judge is coming, the coming of the Lord. Justice, pure, perfect, and satisfactory is going to be here. It's not now, you got to wait, but it's sure because the king is coming, the judge is coming. 
The coming of the Lord is near, verse 8, verse 9. The judge, do you see that? The one who is going to execute and evaluate and dispense justice, he is coming. It's satisfactory justice. Listen, I don't know what's happening to you, and I don't know what will happen to you. But God will address it. He'll reconcile it. And our role as a Christian in a fallen world that's harsh and injurious, sometimes dishonest and unjust, is to let the judge be the judge when the judge wants to execute his judgment. We saw that in chapter 4. Do you not usurp his position? There is one lawgiver and there is one judge. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Unlike the disposition of legal justice, which may not come, God's justice and rightful resolution will come. Wait on that. Not only may you have no other choice because of your status and station, sometimes you're just the weak one. You don't have any resources. That's what's true of these Christians. These brothers were being taken advantage of. They were overpowered by strength. So you may not be able to execute some form of satisfaction and justice. But this passage says it doesn't matter if you have the power because it's not your job. It's the judge's job. Listen, you have no other choice even if you have status and station, because God's status and station is the right one and the powerful one to reconcile wrong. So the first in the text motivation to strengthen your heart with is the rehearsal of the fact that the outcome of this will be resolved. I'm not counting on a human jury or a human judge. I'm counting on a perfect judge and jury. And I'm going to wait. And I'm going to strengthen my heart to wait when I don't want to wait because I have the confidence and the conviction. And it's going to take conviction to wait. And that conviction needs to be the absolute certainty that the outcome, the future outcome of this injustice will be resolved. And it'll be satisfying. It'll be appropriate. It'll be just what it needs to be. You could spend your life trying to resolve things because people have hurt you. And some of you live in a cycle of challenge and bitterness because you've truly been injured. You've been set back relationally. You've been set back professionally. You're living in the throes of loss. It's not right. And James says, wait. Wait. Present and real impact is the second thing I would like to highlight. Be patient and exercise Christian restraint. And I hinted at this at the beginning because there's a real impact today for exercising patience and restraint. You know why? It's countercultural. It's not natural. I mean, it's one thing if you're uber weak to wait. But typically when you're weak, you find a way to get at it why people have this road rage thing. I get bigger in my car. Unless that dude has a big truck, I'm right there with him. And if my car is beat up, I have no reason. Are these the only thoughts that I have? (laughs) This is a recognition that when I am countercultural, whether it's in my family, witnessed by my children, or by my siblings, or by my parents, or by my workmates, or by my neighbors. Strengthen your heart with this reality. Your patience produces influence. When I was a seminary student, I spent a summer in Watts, South Central L.A., with a group of students. And uh, we did evangelism all summer 
Mine was primarily on an athletic court. I had a couple guys who played for our basketball team, and I was their RA, and we played together, and we would share the gospel on the court. And I was team leader, so I was entrusted to shepherd the 35 students, 17 guys, 18 girls who were living in South Central at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church with Dr. E.V. Hill, his congregation. And we had a great summer. I mean, you talk about cross-culture. Um, African-American worship is a whole different thing. And uh, we had a great time that summer. But I, I found this little devotional book by this guy by the name of John MacArthur. And it was called Perfect Love. And it was 1 Corinthians 13. And it was a study of the 15 verbs, expressions of biblical love. The greatest of these is love. And this is what love looks like, 1 Corinthians 13. 15 expressions. And the first expression, love is patient. And John shared this illustration in the book. And the reason I'm bringing it up is here I am a good bit later using the same illustration he used as an expression of don't underestimate the power of influence when you live differently. His illustration involved Abraham Lincoln. His, his illustration involved William Stanton. They were competitors for the nomination for the presidency. And a great example, said our pastor John MacArthur, of macrothemeo in action and impact has to do with one of his outspoken enemies, Abraham Lincoln's outspoken enemy, William Stanton. Stanton despised Lincoln. I mean, it kind of conjures up politics today, the way politicians talk about other politicians. But Stanton said of Lincoln, he's a low, cunning clown. Stanton nicknamed Lincoln, who could be argued one of our greatest presidents, if not the greatest president. He called him the original gorilla. He said that it's ridiculous for people to go to Africa and find a gorilla when they could easily find one in Springfield, Illinois, which is where Lincoln was from. Lincoln's response? Silence. Lincoln never replied. To any of Stanton's attacks. He never said a word to him. But listen to this. When he became the president, and it was time for him to appoint and choose, at that time, what was called the Secretary of War, the Minister of War, for the United States government, guess who Lincoln chose? William Stanton. William Stanton, when asked why he would choose someone who had opposed him so vehemently because he's the best man for the job, said Lincoln. So as the years wore on until the day that Lincoln was assassinated, this is what the biographer says after Lincoln had been shot at Ford's Theater. The night when the assassin's bullet tore out Lincoln's life, in a little room to which the president's body was taken, there stood that same William Stanton, looking down at the silent face of Lincoln and all of its ruggedness. And he was heard, and it was quoted, that he spoke the following words, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. And John included that in his book as a validation in time and in history of what politics and policy cannot accomplish, love, patience, and behavior that is blatantly Christian can accomplish. There is a present and real impact. It's like the centurion hearing Jesus say, forgive them. Surely this is the Son of God. The combination of features and factors that were characterizing the cross were, were means to motivate a Roman soldier to acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, real and present impact. Third thing I'd like to say by way of strengthening your heart, 
what James points out is in verse 10, compelling and inspiring examples. You're not the first person to be mistreated. There are people better than you that were treated more poorly than you're being treated. So he says in verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, hardship, loss, and abuse, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Don't miss that. They were commissioned by God to speak for God specifically. Listen, I am not a prophet. Nor are you a prophet. Yet the prophets who were charged by God to speak for God in the name of the Lord and for the Lord experienced unjust suffering too. Because of doing the most noble thing and for the highest reasons, it is not unfair for us to suffer. Look over at Hebrews since it's so close. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Just one book over as it relates to suffering. So you've got God-appointed prophets speaking the truth of God for the purposes of God. And Hebrews chapter 11 highlights the benefits of faith, like what faith can do, what faith secures, and for the purposes of this, and what faith will endure. Verse 35, after it finishes and culminates on things that happen because of faith, shutting the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, women receiving back their dead by resurrection, chapter 11, verse 35. Now there's a transition right here, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, no compromise. I'm going to pray even if you throw me in the lion's den. I'm not going to bow even if you put me in the fiery furnace. You can, you can put me wherever you're going to put me, but I'm not going to compromise. I cannot compromise. Yes, that's what verse 35, they were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, those kind of men wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. James says, consider the prophets who suffered and they endured. You can be doing the right thing for the right reason and you still can endure great difficulty. Be encouraged by those who have preceded you. They are not above suffering. We certainly are not. Prophets who said and did the right thing, even if the cost got higher and did not retaliate, but but waited on God, are examples. If they did it, we should do it. If they were willing to suffer, we should be willing to suffer injustice. And we ought to be patient as they were patient. Strengthen your heart with that example. Encourage your heart with that reality. This encouragement is from the greater to the lesser. It's kind of like Jesus saying, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they hated and hurt them, they're going to hate and hurt you. If they're going to be unjust and abusive to them, they can be unjust and abusive to you. Do the right thing. Look at the prophets as an example to motivate you doing the right thing. Verse 11, here's another strength in your heart. This is Job. This is the last encouragement I think he gives specifically. This is Job, verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. And he uses the example of blessing. You have heard of the endurance of Job. Hupameno, it's not makrathameo. It's not patience with people. It's actually enduring up under the difficulties. So it's not just that I have a weight restraint for the person injuring me, I'm willing to stay up under the loss and the affliction that goes with that difficulty. 
So he says, consider the endurance of Job. You've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Turn back with me to Job chapter 42. Job 42. Here's the example. Here is the encouragement. If God will bless him in the end, he will ultimately bless you. If he was kind and merciful and compassionate to Job, Job in this life is an example of the way God deals with those who are faithful in the midst of affliction, who suffer well. This is what God did for Job as an encouragement to you. Verse 10, Job 42, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. I just want you to notice this statement, when he prayed for his friends. You remember his friends? I don't want them to be my friends. Remember that? They were seeking to help him understand why he was responsible for all the stuff going on in his life. They were trying to communicate to him his injustice that led to his circumstances. And then it says here, but when he prayed for his friends. I think that's a heart shift. The Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons, three daughters, and then he highlights their names. Verse 15, in all the land, no woman No women, rather, were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. He was blessed. His outcome is an expression of God's mercy and God's compassion. And what James is appealing to is, look how God deals with injustice and hurt. Now, you know and I know that there's no guarantee that that outcome will be realized in this life. But housed in this is the implication that the God who is merciful and compassionate will not reconcile and reward for enduring difficulty in this life in a way that honors God. The blessing may not be in this life as it was with Job, but Job's life in real time and in this life, because we wouldn't know what heaven rewarded Job with, we get to see what the God of heaven rewards people with for faithfulness and difficulty. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus said in Matthew 5, for great is your reward in heaven For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. They injured them, there's reward for them. You can't see it, but they have it. You can't see the reward that's coming for you, the blessing and the benefit, the outcome of your injustice endurance is a good outcome. It's a generous outcome. It's not just the reconciling of justice for the perpetrator. It's the blessing for the one who endures the injury as an act of faith enduring for the glory of God. I want to touch on this last one. Actually, it's not the last one. It's the third one. Go back with me to uh, James chapter 3, verse 5, rather. Third thing. I'll get myself together here. This is the first, thou shalt not. So the outcome of the Lord's dealings, strengthen your heart. So the strengthening of your heart, just to be clear, is you look at other people as prescribed by James to observe and say, you know what, if God did that for them, he'll do it for me. God did it for Job. There will be reward for me. If they suffered and they were better than me, it's not unjust for me to suffer. Be encouraged by those who have suffered and endured and expressed patience in the name of the Lord. Now, two things not to do. Verse 9, do not complain. 
Stop complaining. Don't complain, brethren. Some of your Bibles say, don't murmur. Literally, the Greek word is to grumble. I'm not happy. This is not right. And I'm expressing my frustration about my situation. The Greek is literally to groan, a half-suppressed murmur of impatience and harsh judgment. It can even go to the point of, of uh, grudges. I'm bitter. I don't like my circumstances. The world's against me. People are against me. This is a bad situation. And James says, do right when you're doing, being done wrong by not complaining to each other about God, because God, you could complain it to God, why are you allowing this? Or those God allows to harm and abuse you. No grudges. The reason being, verse 9, says, so you're not judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I want you to notice verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Do you see that? Now, that, that particular verbal phrase can involve, I'm complaining to you. Or I'm complaining in a way that's against you. It's injurious to you. Both would be true. And the idea that you can see here is it's not just I'm complaining with you, but I can actually allow my suffering to impact you. Suffering abuse can prompt negativity with those around us. I'm not happy because I'm being mistreated and you're in my life, you're a brother, and you're being exposed to my negativity that flows out of my injury. Suffering abuse can prompt negativity with those around us because I am suffering. It's almost like I want you to taste it. It is common that when I can't impactfully and successfully complain to the abuser that I'll turn that frustration on those around me and I swallow them up in my discontent and my pain. Do not complain. Do not grumble. Be patient. Accept it and wait on God to deal with it. And don't impact adversely brothers in your challenge. Instead of trusting God, we can negatively judge our abuser and our circumstances by complaining and holding a toxic grudge. I injure those around me, brothers and people in my family. And what James says is, listen, God will judge that because that is not congruous with Christian behavior in the face of challenge and loss. Don't complain. Now listen, is this normal? It's not normal. You hurt me, I hurt you. You hurt me and I can't hurt you. I'm going to complain to somebody about you. Or I'm going to complain to you about them. And this spiral of inconsistent Christian behavior has adverse impact because it usurps the reality that God says, I'm the judge, I'm coming, wait on me and trust me. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 where you are told and we are told to do right even if we've, we're being done wrong. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, unjust, unkind. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows, look at this, when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Sound familiar? Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, 
to live like this, since Christ also suffered for you, he left you an example for you to follow in his steps. Talk about injustice. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered or uttered no threats. Now look at the end of verse 23. But kept. Do you see the kept? This was a pattern, a rhythm, a response to injustice. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. All right, Christian. You want to be a diaspora impact player in the world you circulate and traffic in? Wait on God and trust God with the injustice. Now listen, I'm not saying you can't use rightful means to address injustice. We have an HR department, we have a legal system. But listen, if you're in the world I'm in, that doesn't always play out in ways that are just. You agree with that? So what is a Christian? And then in some spaces you have no recourse. You're in a space or a place where you have nothing you can do. What you must not do is respond in a way that denies God his rightful role and the reality is that he can be trusted with your situation. And then you get the verse 12, the last negative. And don't swear. Now, if you notice, some of your Bibles have a black, italicized, bold 12, verse 12. Because many think verse 12 is its own verse. I'm going to argue next week that it's not its own verse. It's the capstone to address what a Christian can be tempted to do in order to deal with difficulty when you're done wrong. Do you see what it says? But above all. Do you see the but? It connects to what just got said. Don't complain. And above all, don't swear. And that's where we're going to pick up next week as it relates to doing right when we've been done wrong. Father, thank you for the opportunity to examine what is a relevant piece of biblical real estate. And Lord, we would confess that without you, this is not possible So, Lord, by conviction and by personal resolution, in advance, we want to be what honors you by virtue of your position and the realities of our position. And even though threatened, harmed, and hurt, even though taken advantage of and sometimes abused unjustly, Lord, you have called us to be patient, to wait. You've called us to strengthen our hearts so that we will wait because we can lose heart. And you've called us to not complain and grumble about the circumstances that are real and hard. And you've called us to be uniquely like Christ who had no sin and yet waited because he kept entrusting himself to the one who would judge righteously. Help us to live in that way, even in a world that is provocative and difficult. Help us to be blatantly Christian for the glory of God and the good of the gospel. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great morning.